in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from the Lilac City, Mr. Brian Fry. How you doing, sir? Good evening all. I'm doing well. I am excited, Brian. We have a first-time guest. Absolutely. I went so far for this guest. Just so far. Five, six doors down the block, Mr. Kurt Byram. Yeah, thanks so much for having me here, guys, and giving me one of the most appropriate movies for someone of my profession to talk about. Excellent. Today we have a sequel that is rare for the sequel to surpass or equal the first movie. What is a movie sequel that let you down the most, that had the biggest fall-off? I know Terminator 3 was a pretty <laughs> big letdown. He, he didn't go far. He didn't go far. I didn't need to. Also, probably Alien 3. Oh, thank you. I mean... That's a great choice. So of, following up James Cameron's following, Yeah, I was going to say, you know, outside James of the... James Cameron, <laughs> the greatest pioneer. Out of the, you know, outside of the James Cameron sequel failure universe. Titanic 2 is going to suck, <laughs> by the way. Brian, how about, what's the most disappointing sequel for you? I, I, the first thing that leaps into my head is going to be Son of Mask. Oh, okay. that yeah. is yeah. strong choice. Son of Mask was just uh, just horrible. Van Wilder's Rise of Taj was was mm. a dumpster fire. Never saw it. Uh, good, best. good for it's, you. It's for the best. I'll cap off with one more, and this one's funny because I'll still watch it if it's on. Mm. But Highlander two. Well, I'm going to follow in line with you, Brian, about a comedy that comes to my mind is Caddyshack is one of my favorite movies. Caddyshack 2 is very bad. I didn't even know there was a Caddyshack 2. Not much of the cast returns. Chevy <laughs> Chase gets a very large check. He returns. Ted Knight, Rodney Dangerfield, and Bill Murray do not return. Dan Aykroyd mm. takes over Bill Murray's role, but he's playing a role that's so Bill Murray like, nothing works. It, oh. the, it's not well written. Most of the people read it and said, I'm not doing this. It, it's a money grab and a bad one at that. So sequels of comedies in the 80s are generally not good to begin with yeah i had i had pretty much lost faith in sequels until i saw the new top gun oh right. you got a better one blade runner 2049 oh, oh i haven't seen well, that one oh it is not, beautiful oh, it is yeah. it is be- it, it literally that was the movie that allowed me to give my full blessing to denis villeneuve for dune and then kurt what was the last movie you saw uh, yeah, last movie I watched was Elf. Oh, that is a good one. So, Brian, how about you? What's the last movie you saw? This is kind of a cop-out, but I finished watching Terminator Genesis again right before we started the podcast tonight. I didn't mind this one as much as I felt like I did in the past, so now I feel like I have to go back and rewatch Salvation and 3 to see if I'm getting soft in my old age. I feel like Salvation is the best sequel. I did like that. I so I saw the third one. I saw Salvation, but I didn't see Genesis or Dark Fate. I didn't mind it. The last movie I saw is Dark Fate. By the way, uh, 
So I just now got to it. I did not love Genesis. So it just really took me this long to get to yeah. Dark Fate. And I figured watching this now, why not finish this off? You really have to separate it and just say, this is an action movie and I'm just going to watch <laughs> it and take it. It's a lot of action. Right. It looks great. You can't bring your emotional baggage no, from you really the can't. early days of the Terminator you franchise. I mean, they're trying hard to play at the nostalgia, but it doesn't. You have to I let mean, it go. It, it is definitely a hollow, empty room that where something magical used to occur. So, yeah. I mean... I feel like the one thing that they've done a pretty good job of, though, is casting these movies. Yeah. All right. Why don't we get into this? Brian, what movie are we covering today? Uh, we are going to do Terminator 2, Judgment Day. All right. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, Robert Patrick, and Edward Furlong all star in this movie. It comes out in 1991. And The Terminator was a surprise hit. It earned $78.4 million against its $6.4 million budget. I don't know why it took them so long to turn around and say we need to make a sequel to this. Normally that's like, you know, an invitation for at least three more sequels in today's time when you have like a hit like that. But this budget's way bigger. James Cameron gets $102 million and that's the kind of budget he likes to roll with. This film cost $75 million before marketing, they said. So they marketed the crap out of this thing. Uh, that takes it up to a reported 94 to $102 million. So it grosses, though, way more than that. It grosses $204 million domestically. In five days, it became the second highest five-day opening, only behind Batman's $57 million in five days. So, And it's the highest opening for an R-rated film for an Independence Day weekend. And this movie held the world record for highest opening weekend for an R-rated film until The Matrix Reloaded in 2003, another sequel. The box office position is number one on the year in 1991. The movie that placed behind it was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. We covered that on episode 127, so check that out. And the IMDb rating on Terminator 2 Judgment Day is 8.6. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes love it. I give it a 91%. The audience score loves it even more at 95%. It is a three-time Academy Award winner. You may not think of it as such, but it is best effects, best sound effects. It is nominated for best cinematography and best film editing. It gets a BAFTA for best visual effects and sound. It gets nominated for production sound there. Saturn Award winner for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Actress Linda Hamilton. A Saturn Award nominee for Best Actor for Schwarzenegger. That's stretching it a little bit more. Best Supporting Actor Robert Patrick. It is a Hugo winner for Best Dramatic Presentation. And the prestigious <laughs> 1992 Kids Award blimp goes to Arnold Schwarzenegger for Best Movie Actor. That's the most impressive one of these. And the AFI also loves this. Of the top 100 thrills, this is number 77. Seems a little low to me on that. Mm -hmm. And the best heroes, get this, the T-800 is ranked at number 48 for best hero, but number 22 for best villain from Terminator 1. So, uh, And AFI ranked the top 10 science fiction movies of all time in 2008, and they ranked this at number 8 all-time science yeah, fiction. Yeah, so yeah. this movie is well appreciated. It is highly praised. Kurt, had you seen it before? What's your background with it? When did you first see it, and what's it like coming back to it now? Okay, that is a lot. I had seen this movie, despite how much you know. I this, I do think it's a, it's a great movie. Not perfect, but really enjoyable. I think I've only seen it twice before I watched it recently. Maybe like I'd seen scenes of it, you know, on TV, oh, yeah. uh, here and there. Um, but I watched it when it came out in theaters in 1991. I remember watching it with my dad. So John Connor says, "Easy money." when he robs uh, ATM, but I, I still vividly remember driving home in this Oldsmobile on a hot summer day, my dad saying, there's no such thing as easy money. 
<laughs> and then I think I may have watched like a DVD version of it. You know, it would have been at least 10 years ago. So Space Adeline. Yeah. How is that changing as you've come back to it so, through these longer gaps? Yeah, so this last gap, I went back to school to study robotics here in Pittsburgh, master's in robotics, and then worked there for seven years on AI, building drones, trying to create Skynet, basically. And now I work at a company where we're making AI autopilots. Which is really cool. Well, thank you. Uh, and watching this movie was just surreal from this perspective after, you know, working with people who are trying to do things kind of similar to Miles Dyson and, <laughs> uh, you know, some, even some of the extended uh, scenes in the, or the, you know, the cut scenes that were in the extended version. He's like, imagine, a, you know, an airline pilot who's never tired, never shows up to work hungover, never makes a mistake. And, you know, that was what was sold to us as self-driving cars, mm -hmm. you know, which were hitting their heyday about 10 years ago and have kind of petered out a little bit. Uh, we need those still. We I, do. I, st I still want I them. Mean, I mean, people are terrible drivers. Yeah. Like tens of thousands of people die every year. Yeah. We're terrible drivers. Then they, you I may mean, like doing it, but I mean, we're bad. We're, I know. We I mean, people we, are bad at it. There was just this amazing fantasy around 2013 or 20. 2014, 2015, you were seeing self-driving Ubers driving around Pittsburgh. It was like the future is here. And then they had to go and kill someone, just like Skynet. But interestingly enough, that is also one of the major themes in Terminator 2 that kind of popped up to me this time watching it, you know, as a more mature person mm -hmm. and noticing a lot more of the complex themes. You know, there's the idea of what's the value of one person's life if it's going to save billions when our own humanity is at stake, mm -hmm. does that make it worth it to kill in order to preserve peace? Well, you took this to heart then. I really did. I mean, what I, I had kind of forgotten about, you know, how much this movie meant to me, it really did inspire me to study robotics. I did mechanical engineering, eventually started getting into it from the bottom up and doing BattleBot stuff and then eventually ending up at CMU and now working at a company here in Pittsburgh. And that's just really amazing. And I think oh, it's going it's to go downhill for Brian and I. Like, <laughs> like I mean, uh, uh, Brian and I are just going to go, it's a pretty fun movie. It's got good action. It's pretty yeah, cool. I was like, oh, I have this epic personal realization that occurred in preparing for this. So it was, it was a, that's why one reason it was pretty surreal watching it. I was like, some of the things, some of the quotes in this movie from some of the side characters, I'm like, I've actually heard people say that. And we tried to do that and it didn't work. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, how did they predict this so well? This is getting pretty creepy. Well written. It is. And they did their homework. Another thing that really surprised me was reading about how much preparation each actor did for this movie. I, you know, my idea of like really getting ready for a role was basically what I'd learned about the Matrix. You know, they mm -hmm. had to learn Kung Fu and they worked really hard. Yeah. But. From what I was reading recently, it sounds like they worked just as hard at getting prepared for Terminator 2. I mean, on a smaller timescale, probably. James Cameron's full tilt. But yeah, and oh my god, you know, like uh, uh, Robert Patrick learning how to sprint and breathe through his nose so that he looked like a machine, like he wasn't exerting himself. And in the end, he outran the dirt bike. They had to, like, upgrade it. <laughs> you know, it was just wild. And... 
Linda Hamilton and then Furlong. They had to learn how to like tear down and reload guns and fire guns without blinking and all kinds of wild stuff. They were tough as hell by the time they were done with this. And I had the feeling, you know, the final scene, they're like hugging each other and they're like dripping in blood and barely able to stand. I'm like, I don't think they needed to act at that point. That was actually just the last day of the cast together. They just happened to film in a steel mill. Brian, how about you, man? Like, what was your first time with this one? I think there's a very good chance that I saw Terminator 2 before I saw Terminator 1. I definitely did. So I'm with you. I, I think I fully saw T2 before T1. Like, I'm, I'm fairly certain. You know, I didn't fully understand. Um, so I, I understand that it's a sequel, but in a way, it was the first one for me. And, and I feel like with these movies, I'm not even sure if you really do need to see them in any sort of order. It's not something I watch regularly, but it is something that's always been a take my money film series. So like when each of the, the rest have come out, I've made a point to go see in theaters if I can. I think Dark Fate was the only uh, caveat to that. I think I did wait till it came out. But yeah, I really enjoy the, the series. Uh, like I said, I've got some rewatching to do on uh, specifically Salvation and 3. As far as my memory serves me right now, I wasn't super impressed with 3, and Salvation was alright. But uh, yeah, I've, I enjoy the series, and I don't think any of them are, are so bad that I'm not like, ah, let's give it a swing. Mine's very similar to yours. I saw Terminator 2 first, with certainty, on TV, and I came in the middle of it, I as Arnold's coming off the elevator. Mm. And I was hooked, and I had to make myself stop. Because I'm really diligent about, like, I don't come in the middle of movies, I don't walk out of movies, and so I found the TV guide, popped in my VHS, and on my VHS TV all-in-one unit, and recorded it, and so I could have it all from the beginning, with tons of commercials, and, you know, as as it was meant to be watched, (laughs) with tons of commercials and censored. God intended. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I loved it. It was great. And I have probably returned to this one more frequently. I do own this one on DVD. And there's a director's cut version that I think adds about 15 minutes, which I highly recommend. That's the one I watched, and I would also highly recommend it. I mean, it doesn't sound like 15 minutes is going to go that far when you divide it up here, there. But some of the scenes they add are really good. Cameron, when we did Aliens, said, like, watch my director's cut. Like, I should have had the confidence to make Mm, a longer mm. movie. Yeah. And this one, he's, he's not as pushy about saying, like, yeah, my director's cut's the way to go. He was saying, like, there's some people who would really like to watch this all put together in this way. To me, it's a process, and I had to write it in order to make the characters strong, in order to get to the final resolution. But there's some people who probably would like to watch it all, and I am some people. Mm. So, watch the director's cut. There's a Blu-ray version that's out there now that's even longer. I don't have a hold of that uh, one. But well, aren't they remastering like all of Cameron's stuff right now? Like Abyss? Probably and they should. I think they're doing them all in 4K. As long as they don't do the Spielberg thing where they replace all the guns with flashlights. Ugh. Like an E.T. <laughs> oh, did, I did Can you know, imagine did Terminator really... with all flashlights? Well, I mean, the battle scene in the future is kind of like that where they're all shooting it lasers. It might be a but... <laughs> that would Somebody should do that. Spotlight. One, two, three. <laughs> Found you. <What? laughs> Have you guys ever uh, heard of Terminator the Second? Uh-uh. No. Is this the 3D thing that they did no. like, at Universal Studios? It was an officially no. licensed Shakespearean version of Terminator 2 that no. you can watch online for free. I've never made it all the way through it. 
That sounds wild. But they actually got permission from Cameron, this theater troupe, that had put on the show, like, low budget. You know, like, they do the, yeah. the police chase car scenes with cardboard cutouts. And they, every line of it, they just found whatever exact line from a Shakespearean play best fit. Oh, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. It's... YouTube? I think they have their own website. I, I didn't necessarily go back and check this until I had rewatched it this time, but studying this movie was a blast. There's a lot of content, and this movie absolutely holds up to all the scrutiny in studying it. As Kurt mentioned, it's a very thought-provoking movie, and it's a very well-made movie, and it is thrilling, and it nails the science fiction and the action at such a high level. I checked my own personal countdowns, because Brian knows I love a good countdown. This is my number one action movie. All of right. all time, all right. and this is in my top five for science fiction movies, all time. So, I'm probably tipping my hand here. I really like this movie. All right, can't so. argue too much with that. I this and Aliens are probably maybe my two favorite movies of all time. But it definitely, as far as action, so you just want James Cameron to make I, second movies. It in basically yeah. James Cameron sequels. I'm addicted to. If only he had made the mask sequel. Oh, it would, have, it would have turned out so good. Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> would have been an excellent son of the mask. Give me the mask. <laughs> Give me the mask <laughs> if you want to Smoking. live. P-R-A-T-Y, because I've got us. <laughs> well, we will be back after these messages. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. I'll be back. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. We are back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Brian, do you want to refresh people's memories? The movie opens on an apocalyptic landscape where the remains of humanity battle the machines with an adult John Connor looking on. Rewind several decades and two Terminators are sent back in time. One to kill John Connor, an advanced prototype T-1000 liquid metal Alex Mack unit, and the other, a Cyberdyne Systems Model T-800 sent to protect him. You meet young John, a disaffected youth living with his foster family, and Sarah Connor, his mother who has been committed to a mental institution. The T-1000 unit begins his hunt, and after run-ins in the mall and at Sarah Connor's institution, you have the three, John, Sarah, and the T-800, on the run from the more advanced 1000 model, but having survived and escaped it twice. Sarah takes her son and his protector to Southern California, where they load up on guns and she forms a plan to kill Dyson, the engineer most responsible for Judgment Day. She attempts to kill Dyson in his home, but after only wounding him and seeing his family, can't go through with it. Dyson, after seeing the Terminator, is told the whole story. He leads them to Cyberdyne Systems headquarters, and they attempt to destroy all of the data as well as the remnants of the previous Terminator which Cyberdyne had been using to advance their research. After somewhat successfully getting into Cyberdyne, 
They successfully destroy the data, Dyson losing his life in the process, and stealing the remnants of the previous Terminator. They steal a police SWAT van and proceed to an industrial manufacturing yard to destroy them. In hot pursuit is the T-1000 unit. After a sticky battle in which there's a fantastic sequence, sequence involving liquid nitrogen, the T-1000 gets pitched into a vat of molten metal. The remaining T-800 and two pieces of the previous Terminator go into the vat themselves, theoretically ending the war and preventing Judgment Day. So we open up, it's Judgment Day, we see a post-apocalyptic world where like the four horsemen are coming, like you see like these four pieces of playground equipment, the, the future's bleak to say the least. Blade Runner looks like a fun and sun walk in the park compared to this. Disneyland. Yeah, this is one of the most bleak futures you could possibly imagine. This is also a big turnaround from the first movie, isn't it, Kurt? We instantly are thrown into a very different dynamic. Like, that's kind of a pseudo-slasher. Like, there's a horror movie component of this unstoppable force just kind of coming after these people. But this is different, isn't it? Yeah, so much about it is different. And I remember that was one of the... that beginning scene had such an impact on me versus my like memories of these movies is it gives it this feel as this like epic war struggle even though like there's only really you know like six characters or so like it's it's a pretty small cast Mm -hmm. and there's a big action sequence with the SWAT teams but for most of it it's like very personal in your face one-on-one it's like an unstoppable force kind of similar to Alien and then here, this movie's so heartfelt and reverses the roles. And I kind of had that realization watching it, seeing Sarah Connor with dark sunglasses going to assassinate Miles Dyson. And I was like, oh, I, I never noticed before. Now she's the Terminator, and the Terminator is trying to stop her. It really gets into some deep philosophical questions about our nature. You know, there's the. You know, when, like, John Connor says, uh, we're not going to make it, are we? And, you know, the Terminator says it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. Hot take here, maybe. Watching it this time, I had kind of a different perspective. And one thing that caught me was when they talk about Skynet trying to defend itself. We were the kind of the first bad guy when we tried to kill Skynet when it became self-aware. So was that also an example of us trying to destroy ourselves if uh, this was like our creation our offspring it didn't help let's let's say that (laughs) yeah yeah so really the terminators are the good guys we're the monsters i want to go back to what you said about the heartfelt moment james cameron said this is an unconventional family bond is what this movie is a form between sarah john and the t-800 and that relationship is the heart of the movie for him he Mm -hmm, said that mm -hmm. he compared it to like the tin man receiving a heart in the wizard of oz and that was a major influence for him in writing this once you see that, you're just like, wow. But there's the reason why this one is so rewarding. Terminator is very exciting. Yeah. Terminator 2 makes me feel, think, and it excites me at a very high level. It's hard for a movie to just do all of this so well. I think you touched on this earlier. Cameron said that this is a film about the value of human life. No matter how insignificant you are and how meaningless you feel, you may hold great value in the future. It's not the idea of robots coming to kill human beings in the future that Cameron really feels is the real terror. It's essentially that people become the Terminators themselves, as you mentioned. So Sarah Connor in this film kind of becomes that Terminator, and that that nature within them is that's a really interesting moment of, you know, zombie movies aren't really about the zombies. They're about the zomb- They're about how people react react to, the, to each other you know. during a crisis, and at least if they're well made. 
And because there are a lot of bad right. ones too. Science fiction at its best does cause us to look in the mirror and say, who are we and how can we better ourselves out of this? What cautionary tales do we have out of this? And this is just excellent for all of that. Yeah. yeah. Brian, you said you got to this one first. It does rob some of the moments of the shock that Arnold's here as a good guy now. That, that must have been a mind blower. As long as you didn't see the freaking commercials that gave it all away. So their initial commercials come out and they just show Arnold's like coming off of an assembly mm. line. It's not even in the movie. Like it's a teaser right, trailer. Right. Like there's more of these coming. It's fairly threatening. Stan Winston made like a whole. It looks I, good. It looks really like good. Fifteen million dollars on it or something. But they also had no belief that they could actually keep it under wraps. Which I mean, like, if you can hide the Darth Vader like plot twist, I think you can hide this too. But they weren't able to do that. But the previews don't show John being protected by Arnold. They know two are after them, but it's not clear which one's which. Mm. It seems evident now. But I think I, mean, I saw a trailer. Like, it must have been for the video or something. But yeah. it was just like. One sent back to kill him, the other to protect him. You saw him as the bad guy, now he's the good guy. And I was like, what the hell kind of commercial is this? It's a pretty good twist. It's a pretty good twist if you can keep it unwrapped. Oh, yeah. So it's I, brilliant. I know the godfather of the show who helped the show, start the show with us, John, said that he watched The Terminator 1 and didn't, he hadn't seen any previews. He said, mind blower. Like one of these oh, great, yeah. great moments in film history because when she gets off, it's sheer terror when she sees Arnold. Right? I feel robbed of that moment that John mm. described to me. And I'm, I'm sitting there going like, ah. And I, <laughs> and I noticed that like watching it, the early parts of the film, there's only really like one hint as to which one of them is the bad guy. And that's where, you know, the T-1000, he time travels, he comes in naked. This cop comes up to him and he just like beats the crap out of him and steals his stuff. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, he walks into a bar and asks someone nicely. Kind of. For their clothes. He doesn't hurt anybody. It's not optional. He, he said, just give it to me. Like, well, okay, that's he true. He didn't say please. But he didn't physically assault them. Yeah. Verbally assaulted them. But other than that, like, at least up until a certain point, I forget exactly where it was, you aren't really sure which one's the good guy or the bad guy. At least when I was watching, I was like, oh, this could be kind of ambiguous. No, Robert Patrick kills a cop, like, right off the bat. I don't know, he just hits him, like, in the gut, and the guy I goes down. I think I assumed he was dead. They don't show him, like, stabbing him. I think it's really cool that he takes over a policeman, because, like, you can move through and go into places and access things. So yeah, much. Like, That's yeah. a very smart move on the T-1000's part it was, that made this movie so good. So that it was really good writing the, to choose that. The cops become the bad guys, so to speak. That's a consistent theme in these movies, man. I mean, this is basically, like, Ice Cube's whole point right here. I bet he loves Terminator movies. <laughs> yeah, did you read the thing about the Rodney King, the connection to... Wait, here's Rodney King. That's after this, isn't it? That happened while they were filming oh. across the street. In from, Los Angeles. From that bar. Wow. So the bar where Arnold Schwarzenegger comes in across the street was when the Rodney King beating happened. But it also... They do kind of show the difference between like white and black violence and police violence where Dyson just gets gunned down without even being warned. And almost any time somebody points a gun at Arnold, they're like, stop, I'm going to shoot you. Hmm. And give him a verbal warning. And he's a white dude. Well, I've seen this a bunch of times. I've never picked I, up on it. I that. hadn't really picked up on it. And then, well, I had always wondered. I was like, man, they just, they just straight up shot him. But it is also during a part where like everybody's in danger. And you're like, well, but by the time... They come into the room with Dyson. It's in the middle of a battle. Brian, we get a very different Terminator T-800 in this movie. Are you enjoying watching him somewhat become more 
human, if you will, through this. Yeah, I mean, this this kind of starts a precedent that they use throughout the remaining Terminators, where, and, and this is something I've actually enjoyed, is is watching him age periodically and how they work it, that into the storyline. That That's actually something I do enjoy about the Terminator movies. So, you know, you have to have some sort of, like, rehab of how you know it's the 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 you know the machine that learns you know his heart grew three sizes if you want to go with the the time of year you know you have to have some sort of if the machine can think then it can reason feeling i guess is my way of of looking at it i really like the deleted scene if you watch the director's cut there's a scene and arnold says it's his favorite scene where they open his head up and they... I was they, really surprised by that scene, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. They, so they open his head up and they actually remove a procedure in there to be able to learn, which they, they normally disable him from learning. Like, he normally just takes orders from Cyberdyne, uh, from Skynet. So now they go back in and when that scene happens, Linda Hamilton wants to smash it. She's just like, I don't trust Terminators, which... That makes total sense for her character. She's been institutionalized yeah. thinking I hate Terminators for years. So she's had plenty of time to want to... She wants to destroy it. John stops her and even says, like, if I'm going to become a great leader, maybe you should just trust me on this one. And it's a very good scene for lots of I reasons. I was really surprised. It's like, there's no way that this is was cut. It I'm was? like, I must just not have remembered this scene. But that was one of the cut scenes. Yeah, that was a cut scene. And it's so important, in my opinion, to what makes him want to become more human. Not want to, but the capacity to. It also adds moments of humor. Watching him learn to oh, speak yeah. and stuff like that, where he's just like, don't say affirmative, say no problemo. And like, there are moments of humor that I truly enjoy that make this fun to return to. Chill out. You know, hasta la vista, baby. I mean, like, that's really funny. And it, that just so quintessentially action. Action movies should be fun. They should. It's not like Schindler's List or The Pianist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, for all of its intensity, like when Linda Hamilton is staring down Dyson in his home, it's pretty intense. But on the other hand, you have to balance it with these fun moments. This movie handles all of that really well. I don't think. I don't know, Brian. You don't like your, you don't like funny business in your movies as much as I do. But I I think the balance is right here. I don't really find anything in this movie funny. I don't think I've laughed out loud at anything that happens in this. Wow. I mean, in terms of him trying to teach the the machine how to talk and that sort of thing, okay. Put your leg down, like when like he's beating those guys. Well, I was I was just say one of the things that made me and my wife laugh was when he's like, "You can't just kill people." And he goes, "Why?" No, I mean that's a great line. This is wrong. Good, Why? Yeah. It sets up things like he shoots him in the kneecaps. <laughs> He'll live. Yeah, I, I get it as a a kind of a, a crack of smile, like well written. But no, I don't I don't really find any of this funny brian doesn't like funny business in movies so okay okay. well he doesn't find this to be funny business so i i would say the only thing that also makes me crack a smile about it though is this might be i don't is this during the period of time where arnold was really struggling hard with his english schwarzenegger earns 15 million dollars for his involvement on this one so which is outstandingly high i think it was more than i thought it was closer to 17 because he got like a 14 million dollar jet I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. Nuts. I mean, this is $91, too. Yeah. And later on, I read that Linda Hamilton... $1 million. Got $1 million, which is which is a lot compared to what she got in Terminator. And she was pretty excited about it until she found out later what Arnold got. And it didn't feel so good. She said it, you know, was quite a bit more, but it, there's a, the pay disparity. You hear a lot more about this between the male-female mm-hmm. actors in Hollywood now. And 
I have to say, Linda Hamilton's amazing in this. She's incredible in this. Out of the two, she's the only one that has to act. What she does is Oscar-worthy, I think. Like, not Okay, she's not going to win this year, because I checked it out. Uh, this is Jodie Foster, Science of the Lambs, winning this uh, year for Best Actress. Right. So she's going to win Best Actress anyway. So shut it down. Like, but she, but she a nominated? Nom- no, she wasn't nominated. That's my, she that's, should that's have been my, nominated. That's my issue. Uh, the nominations are a little bit tough that year. You got Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon from Thelma and Louise. You got both Thelma oh. and Louise. But Laura Dern from Rambling Rose. I haven't seen that one in Bette Midler for For the Boys. I'm just going to pick on two movies I haven't seen that could be great performances, but I promise you Linda Hamilton is better than one of those. Got, she's got to be. She, she's so good in this. And she goes from, like, psychopath to even loving mother for a second. And the range is great. Yeah, and, you know, she breaks down, has her existential crisis when she sees Dyson's kid, like, covering his dad from gunfire. And she's like, I can't, I just can't do it. The scene you're talking about where they take the mic, they take his processor out of the Terminator's head. And he, you know, right before that, he explains to them, John Connor asks him if he can learn new things to be less of a dweeb or whatever. More human. More human. And he says he has a learning processor, but it's set to read only mode once he's sent on a mission by Skynet. And he's like, there's a pin switch on my processor. He's like, you can switch it. Yeah. And, and then he gives them instructions. They take the chip out. Linda Hamilton almost destroys him. John Connor saves him. And then he starts becoming more human. And I kind of had this thought. There's a moment where Sarah Connor almost assassinates a Dyson. Yeah. And her humanity saves her in the end. You know, like, our nature is to destroy each other, but it's also to learn and evolve more. And she's the realization. She's like, I can't do this. Is that why Skynet doesn't let the Terminators learn anymore? Because they would realize that you can't just kill people? But I don't know. I think, I think they just want them to do what they want to do. <laughs> I, 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 it's better to have a toaster that just toasts and not think for itself. I, I, think, I feel like the learn. more information you gain, the more you learn, the more you realize you can't kill people. I really like that Dyson wanted to help fix the problem. And he realized... No hesitation. Yeah, no, like, I mean, Dyson was such a cool character. He had the humanity and he was willing to throw away his life's work to do what was right that cost him his life in the process which didn't feel good but it's a good death scene too it is good so i don't know how much i can hold this longer i can uh, hold this it's so good <laughs> so cameron informed carlito pictures that the script had not been finished until he knew that hamilton would be involved so i love that he made sure that linda hamilton came back he fought for her to be involved and the just difference that we have in her character is outstanding i heard that that was one of her stipulations was that she, if she was going to come back, she would have to be tough. Like, she couldn't be a helpless damsel in distress. No, you're right. I think that that's amazing. And James Cameron and Linda Hamilton get into a relationship during this movie. They get married in 1997. They only divorce two years later. He has an affair with another actress that is working on the Titanic movie. Not Kate Winslet. Her name's Susie Amos. After only paying her a million to... Only I mean, it does sound pretty good. It's just it's the obscene amount that Arnold is getting paid. So well, he kind of saved this movie. I didn't realize that he keeps the whole franchise going. Yeah. All these sequels are somewhat out of blame to blame for his enthusiasm to keep doing them. <laughs> yeah. he, I love Arnold. He's so enthusiastic to do it, but we keep getting these sequels that I believe are considerably big step yeah. down because he's like, I want to do the Terminator. Because <laughs> yeah, like they couldn't. Like Cameron had to sell his rights. Like 50% yeah. of his rights, he, so they couldn't make the sequel, and then 
Arnold Schwarzenegger, who had just made Total Recall, he like knew what was going on with the companies in Hollywood. He knew the owners of the Cameron's IP of the Terminator were going bankrupt or in financial trouble. So he's like, hey, we can buy him out now. And like, was like the Godfather orchestrating this whole thing in the background. Well, he had every right to want to do it. I mean, he certainly clear, clear, cleaned up bank. Yeah. He said, and you know, everybody I go everywhere always wants me to say, I'll be back. So, like, <laughs> he knew that he had a beloved character. Mm-hmm. And so this put it over the top, though. Or was it like a behated character before this movie? It's a villain we love to hate. Yeah. Brian, do you like our villain Robert Patrick here? This is a relatively unknown character at this point. I absolutely love Robert Patrick. This movie not only launched him as a person to see and fear every time I see him, but it also spun off two different, at least two projects that I am aware of, where Terminator gets referenced to a non-T-1000 Robert Patrick playing a separate role and he has to play it off like, what are you talking about? And that is hilarious to me every time it happens. So you're referring to like Wayne's World when we covered it? Like they go, like he drives up to like Wayne and he's like, have you seen this boy? And it's a picture of like, you know, James, uh, John Connor. And he's and like, and like Mike Myers looks at the camera and goes, ah! Uh, no, I, I think that was intentional, like directly intentional to spoofing Terminator. I'm referring to, let's see, I, I know he was in that John Cena movie called The Marine. He plays a uh, bank robber and they're speeding away and John Cena is in a police car behind him and they've shot the police car about 500 times. And one of his henchmen goes, who is this guy, the Terminator? And all Robert Patrick does is look in the rearview mirror and raise an eyebrow. <laughs> I and, and it's stuff like that, man. And I was watching something That's recently great. with him in it. And, you know, he's quite a bit older now. And he picks up the phone and they were like, yeah, man, they're pulling a Sarah Connor. And he goes, well, who the F is Sarah Connor? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, please let this keep happening. Like these just keep falling in my lap and I love it every time it happens. Please let this continue. I was sad to read that he was living in his car. At the time, oh, dude, yeah. he could live, dude, if he, yeah, he could have. He was he like twenty years old this. and living in his car and barely got the role. Yeah, and then trained like crazy. He's in amazing condition to do this. I mean, I mean, I mean Arnold I, is too. I've never Linda been able to outrun a dirt bike. Here, I right? mean, I don't know. There's there's a scene where they because they map him digitally to do the liquid man. Like they put like a grid on him. And they have him like running around. He got in insanely good condition to do this part. What was weird is he was saying that, you know, he was he was struggling with substance abuse and mm. at this time mm. and he doesn't really conquer it until about three years after this. He oh, he was wow. he was looking at this movie as a fresh start and a way to get his body and mind back in check. It's then a little bit later that he gets his life more together. I don't see any signs of how a person who's using to Maybe be that's in, why he was so fast. He's in <laughs> right. such good condition. Okay. I'm, thinking, I'm like, how is this possible? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I guess when you're twenty. Yeah. So I, yeah, I guess it's just that's the power of being twenty. I don't I, know. I thought it was just like fancy editing that made him look fast. Because both me and my wife, when no, he chases not, him not on the 91. dirt bike, I know we were like, "Man, he looks like he's crazy fast," but that can't be real. You know, they had to have sped this up or something. But it was like, no, he was in that good a shape. He was just a madman. And I really like Cameron said like that the T eight hundred series is a human Pazer tank. The T one thousand had to be a Porsche. Like he's not bigger than Arnold. He's smaller. He wanted someone with a dancer's body, as he called it. He didn't want somebody to be too tall or too built, built up. 
is he's going to fight in a different way. I love the difference on that. I, he wanted a scalpel instead of a sledgehammer. It's so cool, though, to see how threatening it is that this upgraded model, clearly superior in everything that it can do, go anywhere, face morph, and do all these different things. And it, it's the human mind plus this outdated model. That are that are giving them the advantage and the heart that they have and their their humanity together. So, I really like that getting an iPhone 20 with mm, an iPhone mm. 3G. It's so interesting to see how this old technology gives you some comfort, but you know, it, 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 when it gets into a straight up fist fight, he's completely outmatched. I'm really curious if and when you guys learned that Richard Patrick of Nine Inch Nails and Filter is his brother. I did not know that. Wow. I did not know that either. I don't see any resemblance there, but that's amazing. If you put them side by side, you're going to be like, oh, wow. Um, I've never looked at them together. I I, I met Richard Patrick at a concert in uh, Durham, North Carolina, when Filter was playing. Took a photo with him and everything, and had him sign something. And how he wrote his name almost looks like Robert. Richard Patrick. So I, I was staring at it, and I... I two and two just kind of fell together and I go, no way. So I Googled it and sure enough, I was like, oh my God, Richard Patrick's his brother. Yeah. So anyway, fun fact. Robert Patrick does such an amazing job. He's channeling Schwarzenegger's performance as a Terminator, but he's also looking at reptiles, insects, cats, sharks, predatory Bald eagle. Like what to do with his eyes. How did he said I would turn my face down slightly in like kind of a way so that it would seem like I'm preying upon something. His eyes shift and like they're scanning like a computer. I mean, these are a lot of unspoken things. And when you really see the subtlety, and I've seen this movie a bunch of times, you're sitting there going like, wow, you are so good at this. How are you living in your car? And he did Die Hard 2 before this. Why are you living in your Yeah, why are you oh. living in your car after Die Hard 2? Is one of my questions. I guess substance abuse might yeah. be may factor into this. But I mean, yeah. Would you want Billy Idol to be the T? I mean, 1,000? No. After, I mean, after you've seen this, it's like Robert Patrick <laughs> as a child, like, I saw him in, like, the X-Files and stuff, and I was like, oh my god, it's the T-1000. Like, that was his identity to me, like, my whole life, you know. Even being, if I saw somebody that even looked like him. I had a friend in high school look just like Robert Patrick, and we just called him T-1000. Excellent. Cameron said he wasn't going to stick with it, but he was originally cast as Billy Idol was. I as the did T-1000. read that, and I was like, what the... He, 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 had a, he had a serious injuring of his leg in a motorcycle crash, which took him out of it. And I don't want anything bad to happen to Billy Idol. I actually appreciate him as a musician. But I'm so glad that Robert Patrick got this. And, He's so perfect. And in Worst Musician and probably a Worst Actor, Blackie Lawless of Wasp was also considered for the role. He was deemed to be too tall. Uh, he's, he's, he's well over six foot tall. And uh, his music is also deemed to be too terrible <laughs> by me. So, Oh, it works out. Yeah, so it did work out. Edward Furlong, uh, we don't have Chad here who hates on every young acting performance ever, but I think Edward Furlong's pretty good, don't you? Uh, I do. Um, he does a very convincing uh, River Phoenix in this, which is, I feel like, with the hairstyle and everything, was clearly something they were angling for. But uh, my biggest problem with him in this movie is his puberty voice. That was a problem. It is piercing at times, and I was just like, ugh. I don't notice it as much, but they they redubbed him. I was re- I was just reading about that, and I was like, "What?" And I think they redubbed all of his lines except awesome. for like where he's talking to the Terminator about why do you cry? And yeah, 
He grew so much in it, they had to dig a hole yes. in the ground just to get the height <laughs> differential between and Linda Hamilton. Yeah. Consistent. And they shot it out of order. Right, yeah. I think so. he was the youngest during the, um, when they're in the desert. Which Arnold said that was hard for him because he's becoming more human as he's assimilating information. Even if you don't see the director's cut, he does say, like, I am programmed to be able to learn. Like, it's, it's a really bad throwaway exposition line. I know Cameron said, like, I could do in one minute or one, 10 seconds what I tossed out that whole scene for four minutes. I'm like, yeah, but that's, that's valuable. Four minutes. Don't, don't do that. So, but anyway, would you want Charlie Cosmo of What About Bob, Hook, and Dick Tracy in here? Because he was considered for the role, but he could not get out of it due to his obligations for What About Bob? I don't know. That's a tough one. When I was, you know, I think it was like eight or nine when I saw this. And I'm like, why did my parents let me see this? But I was like, man, he's like the coolest kid ever. Cosmo's a good kid. Yeah. Actor. Like he's got a mouth on him. Like you see it in Dick, you see it on, you see it in Dick Tracy. Yeah. Um, uh, now it's my, my least favorite parts of Edward Furlong's performance are where he's trying to be cool. I guess now it, it just as an adult feels cringy. That's just the nineties. The things that were cool in the nineties yeah. no feel as cool. But I thought like his emotional, where he's like, ah, I love it when like I thought he did such a great job with that. Linda Hamilton scolds him for coming to rescue him. Oh yeah. And like yeah. he's in the back seat of like I just didn't want you to be in there anymore, and like I was like, that's the heart that I'm talking about. This movie has so. I really like Edward Furlong. He wasn't an actor at all. They got him from a boys and yeah. girls club in Pasadena. He also didn't have a connection to, you know, his parents and, you know, no father around. And so that channeled into this. And he had that surliness. They said every kid actor they kept bringing in was taught to be bright and right, cheery right, and to go right. big. And so when they wanted a street smart kid, they kept going like, you know, I can almost picture it. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, you're not going to get me, <laughs> Terminator. Yeah. It's like. Right, like bubblegum commercial kids yeah, or something correct. that are constantly smiling. and I didn't see these auditions, but I just mentally yeah. thought of myself. Vanessa Bayer used to play a character on Saturday Night Live of like a bad kid actor. Like, you know, like, and I, like, mm. I, this is instantly what came to my head. So. <laughs> the sun will I just, come I was out. So Terminator. Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was always so sad that um, Furlong didn't really get things together afterwards, and it's kind of. He was going to be in the third. He was going to be in the yeah, third movie. And he couldn't get his he, stuff he, clean. he also struggled with the substance abuse and not able to. And do I think it. he's still to this day. I mean, I don't know. I do know this much. They made like a T two three D at Universal Studios. It's gone now. You can watch it on YouTube if you really want hmm. to. That takes away so much of the experience of being in the theater and seeing it with the people and stuff. But he reprieves his role as John Connor there, and Arnold and Robert Patrick and Linda Hamilton are all in that. So. Again, it's gone. You can't go see it anymore. I think it went out in 2019, but mm. at least he got to do that. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, but yeah, I lo when I was a kid, I, he was like my hero. For I didn't really, you know, we didn't even have the internet, so it wasn't like I could Google and Wikipedia binge. So I didn't really know whatever happened to him after that. One that blew my mind, James Cameron double casting here, is Jeanette Goldstein. She's Private Vasquez in Aliens, but she's also John Connor's foster mom. Was that the same? Same woman. I didn't even, I did not realize that was, I love Aliens, and Vasquez is one of the greatest characters. Yep, that's and her with the arm, like the arm blade no, shooting right she, through her husband's, like, you know, milk Now milk I, I can milk see carton. it, now that you mention it, I can see that, but I, yeah. I, I was looking down at the casting, because we just covered Aliens, like, last year. Yeah. Like, like Goldstein's fresh in my mind, I was like, Jeanette oh. Goldstein? 
who's and then i looked down i was like connor's mom oh that's wild yeah i know that blew my mind danny cooksey plays tim the, the the redheaded friend of John Connors. Oh, he was in uh, Sleet Your Shorts. Exactly. That's all I always yeah. like. I, 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 knew... I couldn't handle it. That I was like <laughs> d- different strokes as well, but Sleet Your Shorts is what I. That was the one that I always had seen him in, and I remember seeing him on the bike, and I was like, Bobby Budnick. Oh my See, god! They, they missed another <laughs> strong opportunity there for a good crossover line when she's on the phone <laughs> with John. Trying to get him to tell her where she is, she could have been like, "Look, man, I only need to do one thing. Where are you?" Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was that was a really subtle thing. Just you mentioned that scene where he's like, "What's your dog's name?" And he says, "Max." And then he's like, "Uh, mom, is Woofy okay?" And then the mom's like, "Uh, oh, Woofy's fine, dear." Y'all pounce on that he's dead. I didn't. I never already dead. I yeah. I never caught that until watching it this time, and I was like. Oh, that's how he knew. Oh no, it's good. Like it just like it was so subtle. I was like, I figured, oh, he just you know he can has voice analysis and knows that it's Cameron himself had a dog named Wolfie at one point in his life. So nice little callback there. Yeah. This is one of those uh, cases where he put so much creativity into his movies that when it came to naming his dog, he just sort of mailed it in, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It's like I have created an alien race (laughs) that will echo in eternity for how amazing they are dad what do you want to name the dog wolfie get out of here (laughs) it was said it was short for beowulf Mm. okay not not by wolfie but i mean (laughs) i mentioned before liking the director's cut michael bean actually comes back in the director's cut i was like oh my god they cut him out of this movie because i was like i know he was not in it's the a movie that I saw. It's a dream sequence. Yeah. While Linda Hamilton has been drugged and institutionalized. Why did you... I, I'm going to keep saying this, and it's like, why did you cut that? I know. It's like, poor Michael Bean. He gets cut out of everything. Alien 3, Terminator 2. I want to I want to be cut out of Alien 3. I, 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 I know. I want, Everybody wanted to. I think David Fincher was cut out of his own movie. He's disowned it. He doesn't, like, won't... Oh, has he? Yeah, he's, like... Officially, like he's like, I don't want even His want to be associated. so good, except for it. I know. <laughs> so. I gotta tell you guys, I'm I'm really enjoying this. I'm I'm will think of this film and the fact that all I keep hearing is make it longer, because I'm usually on an island. I'm usually the one going make it longer, and everybody's like, boo this man. But it sounds like at least right now, universally speaking, for the folks who are on here right now, we want a longer T two. It's just I, so well written. So James yeah. Cameron said that. When you write characters, they have to have a past to them that then informs what they're doing here. Mm. And most action movies don't get that level of writing. So Cameron is writing these characters that influence each other. Again, thought-provoking concept. So the big picture is right, but also his execution and how he's writing this. It's unbelievable. He has, like, no time to do it. He's behind schedule from the moment they greenlight this. I'm unclear why you have $102 million to be able to make this thing, and you're on such a deadline. But they were. They were really it was a, a bunch of crazy, like, studio contractual BS that, like, protract, like, squeezed everything in. To get in. the rights, you only have this long to do it or something? Well, no, I think it was, like, they had that deadline. They had to have a movie out by this time or something. Why? I don't know. So you can sell toys or something? Probably. I mean, they made a ton of money off of the toys they sold from it. Which are weird. Like, it's an R-rated <laughs> movie. I remember having friends who had Terminator toys and being yeah. like, what's that? Yeah, like, like, oh, it's G.I. Joe and crack. You yeah. Know? <laughs> I wasn't allowed to watch Terminator or Aliens as a kid. And I, I, I had people who maybe they had older brothers or maybe something like that. 
and they had aliens and like Terminator toys, and they'd be talking about like, this is the Terminator. I'm like, that's an interesting looking robot, man. <laughs> I could play with my X-Men with him. And they're like, they'll be like using, they'd be quoting him. And I was like, I am clueless as to what you're talking about. Yeah. I think my parents let me watch this and aliens based on the like quality of the story. They were like, like I didn't watch a lot of superhero or other action movies. I didn't see Robocop or anything. But they Robocop's were like, pretty violent, actually. It is. Well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, I didn't see a lot of violent movies or scary movies, but they were like, these I would movies love, in I particular, would, I would, I would you should my, watch because would, of the, like, there's, there's so much good stuff there. I think, I think what happens with a lot of these films, I'm going to lob Robocop into the, the mix, too, because I saw Robocop, The Crow, this, Alien, like, so many movies that are R or heavily PG-13, back in the 90s, I got to watch because they were on TNT. Like, the, f- the, the first go-around. And I, and I think it's because there was no... Like, my parents didn't do any censorship on network television. It was all like, if I tried to bring something into the house, what is that? What's the rating? Whatever. But if it was something already being televised on TV, then they figured that enough work had been put into making sure there wasn't anything too bad for, for someone to watch. I think Terminator 2 is an easier thing to hand your kid than Terminator because like there's a heavy love scene in, in like Terminator <laughs> that I, I saw it on TV and I didn't know that was there. And then I remember buying it and watching it and mm. thinking, it was like, this is intense. <laughs> like, there's like a phone call where he's like, I'm going to rip your buttons <laughs> off one. And one. I remember like, just like squirming in my seat. I'm like, what the hell is this? So yeah, I, I have to admit like this one's better. I think. I think, yeah. For, for, I'm not saying it's a soft R. There definitely is enough bad language, and there certainly is enough violence, but it to be an R, but... Very it, easy it, it, to clean it up. Well, exactly. and, and there's not really like, blood. This, this becomes... If you think about it, most of the damage done in this is T-1000 getting shot, and he just gets these cool little iTunes visualizer holes in him. <laughs> yeah. The, I think the biggest kill scenes come from the T-1000, like putting a blade, Early through, on in putting the a blade through the foster yeah. parents. But there's still I was really surprised not. at how bloody that was, and I think maybe because I've seen scenes of it on TV where they probably cut out like they take the, edge the off penetration of that. and yeah, like the amount of blood. The security guard in the war and like the ward, yeah, he's, like, gets coffee. You and, see like, it and, like, the, like, going the through his through. eye socket. Which, by the way, they had to get a twin to do that. I, yeah, yeah, but but from a profile, I'm I'm still saying if you really pay attention, it, it's all very artfully done to make it. The least go like because they could have done way worse. He could have been oh, out there yeah. beheading people. I, I think the only point in time I can ever remember seeing actual blood is when John puts his finger in one of the Terminator's bullet holes and asks him if he feels pain. This this was a pretty grueling schedule though. As I mentioned, they they did work a five day week so that they could Cameron could turn around and edit. That doesn't sound too grueling, but they worked through Christmas Day. They worked very hard with, again, the amount of training that went into everybody to being able to do this and the amount of filming scenes out of sequence to try and save time. I can't believe this, the much money's in there and they're having to be resourceful. Oh, yeah. And they had like, they could only do like a lot of the practical shots one time. Yeah. So I remember watching it and I was like, wait, you can't do multiple takes on that because they just hit like a brand new semi truck. They just plowed a bunch of cars in the street and, and really messed up the front of that truck. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's another scene where like they come out into the street and it's goes from far away to like 
Arnold Schwarzenegger's face right in front of the camera. And I was like, holy crap, that had to be one shot to pull that off back then. I was blown away having like more knowledge of how movies are made at what they were able to do in just single shots. I know how hard it is to pull something off complex and yeah, really impressive. It must have been hell to be on that set. And Cameron is notorious for liking a lot of shots. Maybe not Kubrick level, but still like yeah. He likes a lot of, you know, I don't he makes it hard on his editors too by how many takes he has. Mm-hmm. Like they would say things like the crushing skull of the endoskeleton at the beginning, they crushed like six of those. And you're just like, "Wow, it looks pretty good. Why was that necessary?" And once you hear that, they had people who would say like they would wear t-shirts on the slogan is like, oh, "You yeah. can't scare me. I work for Jim Cameron." Yeah, or they said like Terminator 3 not with me or, or something like that. That was more right. That was right well, that... in more ways than we thought. <laughs> yeah. I really liked Terminator 3 at first when I first walked into the movie theater and it wasn't until further rewatches later that I started to sour on it. Like here in Terminator 2 they did a lot of stuff. Yeah. They built they took a two-floor office building, they built a whole other floor on top of it so they could blow the crap out of this in theory four-floor office tower. They flew an actual helicopter with a stuntman who goes under the underpass. That's I not was CGI. like that looks real. It's dangerous. And they didn't cut it so that you only see the top of the helicopter. Like, that's not a helicopter on wheels going underneath no. there. And, yeah, I looked it up, and they were like, they did it. the pilot did it because they were just going to have to not do it at all. And he's like, screw it, I'll fly under It was originally device. written to be in a tunnel, so they had to downsize it from yeah, that. Yeah, and they were going to do CGI, I think, and Cameron said, it's just not going to look good. And then there was another scene. The camera crew refused to film because it was too dangerous, so Cameron filmed it himself. It was something like riding in the back of a truck holding camera up close to the helicopter, I think. Yeah. It's a really fun thing to see Cameron on the set. He's literally putting dust on the floor, like with a broom, like in, su- in such a way. He's going and helping apply blood on people's face. He is incredibly meticulous. He is so committed. And I do think that people can become frustrated with him, but he is one of these directors that has such a clear vision of what he wants. And his body of work is phenomenal. It's hard to, uh, hard to put fault at that. You know, I, I've watched Steven Spielberg behind the scenes, and it's amazing, and everybody really likes Steven. I'm, I'm always amazed that Steven can order people about so much with such specificity, and people seem to really love him. Jim, Jim, James Cameron doesn't have that likability to him, but I have to also say he hasn't had the misses that Spielberg had later in his career either. Cameron's batting average is remarkably Pretty freaking strong. high. Exactly. Like, what's the worst movie he's done? There aren't any. They're all good. I mean, at some yeah. point, he can't make five Avatar movies and have them all be good. I know, but yeah, you're... He's going to miss eventually. It's like coming. He, he's, like, had to do a deal with the devil or something, and maybe his negative side was everyone will hate him, but I, I don't mean, know. It's, it reminds me a lot of my old advisor at CMU, Red Whitaker, just in the specificity and driving people nuts and uh, being relentless and... I kind of admire it. I mean, it... And, and, it, likes it. and to put in a good word for my old advisor, you know, most people remain good friends with him and have had good experience in the end. I hope that's the same with Cameron, but there seem to be so many horror stories. Schwarzenegger speaks very fondly of Cameron. He, you know, he said that he's more attentive in terms of the actor's motions. He's very specific and has a very clear vision. He said Cameron movies also have a Cameron look to them. He's been very supportive and called him, people like saying like a demanding cast master, but but he has just amazing attention to the visual details and the physical parts and the acting. The whole part of it, he is, he is a joy to work with. And Cameron also really 
spoke very highly of working with Arnold, saying he's one of the most professional people he's worked with. He's not just a meathead. He takes physical direction right. like no other actor he's been told, and he's just a real joy to work with. It was, it was pretty cool to hear about, I was reading about how they first met. They were casting for the first movie, for The Terminator, and originally it was going to be something totally different. And so Cameron was like, okay, I'll go meet Schwarzenegger, and I'm going to piss him off so that I have to leave. Like, he had no intention of even entertaining the idea that Schwarzenegger would be a part of the film. But then he sat down with Schwarzenegger, and Schwarzenegger was so, like, Gregarious. excited about this and so entertaining. Yeah. And just totally won Cameron over. He was interviewing Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Kyle Reese, not the Terminator. Oh. He was going to be the protagonist good guy. Boy, I can't imagine any machine holding up to a fight with him. Yeah, and in their conversation, they basically both realized that Arnold should be the Terminator. We, we know that James Cameron goes big here, but Brian, what for you is the magic of James Cameron? Well, in 1982, he did a movie called Piranha 2, The Spawning. It got a 3.8. <laughs> okay, there you go. I guess you found the bad I one. I haven't seen that, but I was reading some stuff. So, so, so I, I feel like they're... they're there might be a little justice there at the very beginning of his career. Kurt, you like you like number two movies by Cameron, though. So uh, yeah, it maybe it's amazing. I don't know. I, oh, I yeah. haven't seen it. I just it has by far the worst uh, reviews of all of his uh, directorials. <laughs> so, but by and large, I you know I worship at the altar of Cameron as well. I do enjoy watching him get made fun of from time to time. I feel like you've got to be able to take that when you've had the success that you've had. I'm sure he'll take that with his Oscar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he, he, I'll he take that needs, with my billion dollars. Yeah, he needs to care zero percent what anybody thinks of him. So, but yeah, I mean, he's he's done like there there are directors out there that have one, two, three really you know heavy hitting things to their credit, and James Cameron does that with science fiction. I mean, between Avatar, Terminator, and Alien. I, I feel like that, and he did the abyss too. So, I mean, it's just like, you know, he's, he's paid his dues. He's, he's got his niche and, and he does it really, really well. And then I, I think it's sad. This movie, I think this movie is Oscar worthy. Like, I think, I think the performances, no, the, come on. Really? I, I think it's really sad that just cause you have action scenes and gunshots and stuff like that, you're, t you're pulled out of the running for best director or best picture. It's almost like the Academy just says, uh, how many gunshots were there in there? Yeah. Was there more than 15 in per second? Out. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, a minigun? No. <laughs> That's a preposterous They thing. slowed down the sound of the minigun because it just makes a burr. Well, yeah, they slowed down the rotation of the barrel, too. They mechanically yeah, changed yeah. And I guess they also put a handle on it that's different, too, like a chainsaw handle. So yeah, that's, 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 I think, only been done in this movie and in Predator. It is the same gun. I was wondering if it was the exact, it is, it's the same, exact gun same gun because uh, I was looking. I had looked it up at one point because I was like, miniguns are mounted on helicopters and they're like nobody carries them around, and that's like one of the only like semi-working models that's ever been created in a handhold, and like nobody could even carry it because it's so heavy. I remembered that piece of trivia from back when we covered Predator. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's like, the same minigun used in Judgment Day. Yeah. It's like. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I never forgot that for some reason. I don't know why I'm it's so attracted just, to the minigun, but it, it is know, compelling. Just, it is. To watch bullets be fired in a chain. To like see that. barrels rotating. Uh, again, James Cameron has enamored me by just like shooting up. Like, there's an enormous amount of gun hardware. I'm not a gun nut, but if you are, this has to be one of your favorite movies. Yeah. They had the guy who was dealing with the movie 
munitions and all the different things and all the rounds and stuff talking about like training everybody on the cast but he's like the most different kinds of guns like he's this is my dream like i've never worked on a movie with so many different kinds of things like you do a war movie everybody's got the same kind of gun right 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 he's like it's like there's so much going on here. Well, like, he's he was got having like a field day. the grenade launcher that he walks around with. That's like Vietnam era. Yeah. The minigun, a little later. Grenade but... launcher's so cool. Oh. It doesn't work that way. Probably I, I've even heard like like MythBusters said like you know like it would bounce off the wall back at them mm. know, in the building that they're in. But still, I don't care. It's awesome. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, uh, the Oscar thing. Yeah. That you were bringing up, and I I've given this some thought. Because a lot of the critics early on complained about the ending not making sense. Of this? Yeah, of Why? this. Why? It's great. Well, that was my initial thought. Because to me, this movie like defined what a good movie was. It was like, you have a, if you got a Terminator, this is what it looks like. If you got an action sequence, this is what it looks like. And you end in a steel mill. You can't self-destruct. I mean, and it's so good. The emotion how... of John wanting him to stay. But my wife kind of sparked it. She was like, you know, Sarah Connor's going to go assassinate that guy to prevent Skynet from starting. And she's like, why would they care? Wouldn't that be a good idea at this point? If you were like... To kill Dyson? Yeah. But if they change the future, he doesn't want to do it anymore. Somebody else will likely follow his work. True. That's so, Yeah. I mean, I, I mean that's, that's a totally valid point. But that, it was like, why would John Connor care so much about this random person's life? They do kind of... Like he's a good early leader. on, he's a good leader. He's <laughs> yeah, a human being. yeah, like, they I, do kind of instill like early on. He's like, you can't just kill people, and he's why? His mom doesn't feel that way. Wrong. Exactly, and you're like, well, where did John Connor get this super high moral ground after robbing ATMs and telling? Because he's been they show you, they showed you what he grew up and he didn't like it. He had been bounced around these military camps and all these people, and true, he, and he true. said, when I got pulled out of it, I realized it was all weird. And he was thrown into the real world later and that that did a mind trip on him like yeah. he wasn't like oh i've got great foster parents now he's just like i don't belong here i didn't belong there that wasn't real i've never belonged anywhere at this point and i think that the, he had enough time away from from the madness of his mother's world that she was in not literally crazy but you know the crazy upbringing that he was in in terms of like meaning just irregular and so I think that gave him his moment for humanity to be able to yeah. see, to, to have lived in different modes of life, have walked in those different shoes. He probably doesn't develop that if his mother isn't walking. Now that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I was kind of surprised when thinking about it in a cult calculating sort of way. I was like, you know, there's this central theme of John Connor showing this extraordinary humanity, risking his life to get his mother risking his life to stop her from doing something terrible, you know, despite all of the risks, and he could have got away. But the thing that kind of doesn't make sense towards the end of the film is where are they going to go after this? They just, like, destroyed L.A., ran off to a steel mill. They're going to have to go to Mexico. Well, there is a different ending where it's very cathartic. Right, he's like like a congressman or something. Yeah, and, like, Sarah Connor's living in, like, the future L.A., and, like, you know, she talks about, like, how it's, like, the the reality was real for her. I'm glad they cut this one thing because what uh, Cameron went for was a more ambiguous thing. The future's not set. Right, It could still go wrong. As you pointed out several times, people can ruin things, and every day's a battle. And good watching the watching the movie close on a road that's moving towards them challenges us as human beings to be responsible, to value human life, 
and just take the lessons we've learned through this movie. I like happy endings, but I really, again, good science fiction challenges us as people yeah. to be better. And I think that does that for me. Gosh, I really like the ending of this movie. I, <laughs> I do too. I thought it was perfect until I was like, there are going to be outlaws for life. When you... you know, they just, they just caused the stock and knee replacement surgery companies to go through the roof. Got all the cops. They're responsible. All the cops. Yeah, they're responsible the for like 400 kneecaps getting blown out. <laughs> the, knee surgeon, the knee surgeon guy's like, it's like, yeah. I can buy a boat. Yeah. I can buy a I mean, couple of boats. What's with all this? I mean, and they, they blew up an office building. Uh, I feel did, like at know. some point John would be like, that's a very painful way to stop somebody. Can you, <laughs> yeah, like, can you just can like you hit just... the pressure point? Like, like the James Bond thing where you pinch their neck and they just fall yeah. on the floor? I mean, you might as well just kill them. You know, shot out, shoot out both their knees. That's rough. Yeah. That's rough. Disability. 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 <laughs> disability. <laughs> disability. Disability. Yeah, but, you know, like, like what is John and Sarah going to do now? They just... Well, the, thing, the other thing is, like, they destroyed every shred of evidence in order to protect the future. They're kind of sacrificing their own lives. One issue I have with all of the sequels, and I don't want to spoil all of them, by destroying Arnold here and saying, I have to self-terminate. Well, had I not self-terminated myself in the end of the second movie, we would have had a much easier time dealing with everything in any <laughs> sequel that ever came through here, and it completely invalidates the ending of this and movie. And he could have grown into such a likable character. Like, like they, I hated when you had to start not, over. Not Salvation. <laughs> did they redo that in the later they did it I, okay dude, the whole the whole purpose of genesis is showing like this age range of terminator from 1982 oh, okay to okay. 2017 then which follows into to, mm, to no fate mm. and then i also did just since i brought it up earlier i actually did go up and look it up the t850 had two notable upgrades over the 800 one is a better understanding of human psychology, and two, a mm. power core that can be used as a mini nuke. Okay. Oh, yeah, I remember that nuke thing. At the end. One stylistic thing I really like that James Cameron does, and I love it when directors do this, Cameron shot the movie in two different colors using lighting filters for orange and blue. So orange was the color of humanity, and blue was the color of the machine. This is mm. brought... So in the steel mill, there's a lot of really intense blues and oranges, the molten steel, the different liquid nitrogen and all this stuff. And I love that these colors are used. And I really praised Gattaca a long time ago when we covered it and the use of color and what, it, what the tone is and what it's saying and how it's reinforcing the characters. I really like it when the cinematographer and the director do something other than just what's real or what's standard to reinforce your feeling in those moments. These aren't something that you would even notice if you saw it 12 times necessarily, but you feel it. It goes in your sublime. Warm and cool colors affect you differently. And I love it when you find out like those little tricks of the trade. I I love that in the in Aliens. Yeah, he you know he uses like white purity and uncorrupted and then like basically green and blue and blue. Yeah, but yeah, that is really interesting. And another little thing about like the steel mill that was kind of interesting was showing like kind of American industrialism was kind of representing the old Terminator against like slicker newer technology so one cool thing that cameron does is he uses really amazing technology he couldn't even do the t1000 in the first movie he had the idea for it right i was surprised about that finding about that but in the abyss he has like this amorphic face and so he figured out how to do it mm -hmm. and it's still a risk to commit so much time in such a presence to this movie 
it's actually not as much as you think when you add it all up the number of minutes of T-1000, but a lot of the budget went to making the T-1000 effects work. And it is funny that you mentioned, Brian, this becomes usable for like a Nickelodeon TV show, Alex Mack turning into a puddle. But um, <laughs> it's amazing how technology becomes accessible once somebody breaks the doors down for you. But he also uses old techniques. There's rear projection, like where they take a vehicle and they shoot a screen behind them instead of a blue screen, and the actors can look behind them, respond to it. And Cameron was even saying a lot of people don't mess with this anymore, but it enables me to do things that aren't safe for the actors. So I can have Arnold crawling on top of a tractor trailer, but I can use rear projection to make it look like it's sliding in some scenes. And I can do these different things in that way. Uh, or the helicopter kicking out the glass while shooting, and I need two hands to be able to drive a helicopter, but I have, to, you know, I have no hands <laughs> when I'm knocking the, wind, the glass down. So it's one of those things where... He's a master of the people who have gone before him with their filming techniques, as well as cutting ground in like that same way that like George Lucas was finding new ways to do things and really pushing ground. Here at 91, we're about to max out on what practical effects can do. And the computer is coming in, and we're about to see some horrible stuff in the late 90s where the computer is being asked to do too much. And I want to say how much Cameron had the restraint not to use computers when they shouldn't be and use do things for real. And that because it's real, it's very grounded. If you watch Terminator Dark Fate, I won't give too much away. There's an airplane that's like going through a tailspin and they're going through a bunch of anti-gravity fight. None of it makes any sense. And it just doesn't feel real. Mm. The, stakes, the stakes are suddenly removed. We have machines from the future and it somehow doesn't feel real anymore. Like, I mean, like yeah. I, I, you've left, you've jumped the shark. I suppose it's fine for Fast and Furious 19, but I just don't think that the, what Terminator wants to be and... Cameron is always in touch with the right effects for that. I think we praised Jurassic Park for doing this yeah, as well. Yeah. What's real, what's animatronic, and what's computers, and how it all One works together. One of the best together. mixes, I've always thought. You know, they did like two. skin texture and muscles, Yes, but then full heads. And I was always impressed that that girl screaming when the T-Rex like lunges at her, she's like, I didn't have to act because they had like a 4,000 pound yeah. T-Rex head come through the wall at me. So doing it for real, I think this day still matters. I mean, there's, I a, lot of, there's, a, there's a lot of acting with tennis balls on blue screens, and you can do an amazing number of things with Iron Man flying through the sky and doing amazing things that you could never do in Cameron's time, and some of it's very worthwhile, and I'm glad that we're continuing to push through there. But I also feel like we're in like this digital haze right now. We're, like, we're yeah. going just crazy, because we and can't. I, heard, I saw something where people were basically blaming Cameron for opening Pandora's box and being responsible well, he, for, he was responsible the for the runaway CGI of the later 90s. and I don't blame that on him. Yeah. I mean, he comes back and does Avatar. I don't feel like it's... That holds up amazingly well. I watched yeah. it for, with my daughter recently, the original Avatar movie, and I was like, the CGI doesn't look dated. They did a really good job with this. They're not doing stupidly anti-gravity fight scenes or like... I'm gonna, I always use Indiana Jones and the swashbuckling on top of the moving Jeeps. It's not real. No human being can stand on top of a Jeep moving 60 miles per hour and have a sword fight. It's just... Which one was that? Crystal Skull. Oh, don't... Mm. Sorry. I had to... I had to like, that's an, example, yeah, well, that's an example of what not to do. And that's even Steven Spielberg making that mistake. Sorry. No, Kurt's angry I mean, at me now for saying Crystal Skull. That just... That one hurt. <laughs> that one hurt, hurt hard. That was another sequel that really disappointed me how about every johnny depp sword fight in pirates of the caribbean (laughs) well i don't know indiana jones because it was filmed the first three times was also it was based in reality 
you had to be on a motorcycle. Stuntman had to do those things. Or you had to you had to actually get a man to, you know, build a set that had a car that could move this way through the Temple of Doom. Once you stop being constrained by those things, you can do anything you want to, but you have to then be very good as a director to decide what's real. And I think, honestly, some people like that. I think some people will watch Terminator Dark Fate and go like, this is awesome! I believe 13-year-old me didn't watch movies the way I would go on oh, to. Yeah. I think I would have appreciated it as a 13-year-old who had no knowledge of the prior movies. And I think I would have said, sure. I just think that movies should be good at all ages. That's what I'm getting. Mm, mm. So, and this one is. Well, yeah, speaking of when you're young, I loved Alien 3 when I was Did two, you? And now I'm like, that was horrible. You know, I mean, I I was like, oh, it really sucks that they killed off New. Inval- thus invalidating I mean, a very important storyline yeah. in the second movie. I mean, that part was just awful. But as a kid, I was willing to let it go, and I was like, oh, this, I kind of got into just the monster part of it. It and reeked of, sleekness. I want to tell my own story, and I don't care about it. I know, and for me. now I'm like, it's so insulting. There are so many part three fails around that period of time. Like, if you look at third installments within, like, call it two years before and after that, so like a five-year period around. Are you Alien 3 or Terminator 3? Worse? Yeah. Or which one's like, worse? Which, 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 which would you rather have? I'd have to watch it again, but I'm going to go Alien 3. I'd rather watch. I'd rather watch Alien 3. Alien 3 is more competently directed. I just felt like it was more hurtful. The too. story was, oh yeah. I mean, it was so bogus. They just eliminated like. Can I have like the an alternate answer? Soul. Give me Fincher with Terminator Three. And, oh, and, like I, give I, me Cameron. Well, Cameron was going to do Alien Three. Arnold really tried hard for years to get Cameron to do three. And to do Alien Three. Don't or do Terminator, Terminator Three. I, furlong and it, like he really tried mm. very hard. It took as long as it did because he really wanted to make it happen. And Cameron, you know, was probably busy making Titanic around the time yeah. that it happened. He had gone, he had gone on this boat, boat. He was like, I need an Oscar. Screw you guys. I have to admit, how did the Terminator 3 not go into the future sooner? Like, I really wish we could have gotten Cameron to go make a third movie where they go into the future. That's the only obvious place to go with it. And all these other sequels refuse to go. Salvation goes there. I was going to say, I did see Salvation, and I, I liked that way better than 3, but it got a lot of like bad reviews and stuff, and I kind of understood. It wasn't what everybody wanted it to be, but I thought it, you know, it had like kind of a cool twist in it. I think the one thing that I can really back on all Terminator movies is there are very, very few casting changes I would make. Hmm. I didn't like in T3 who they Three. had for John but- Connor. So... The atomic bomb scene, we didn't talk about that at all, and I feel like that was another thing in this film that was mind-blowing, and it's still considered like one, or if not the best depictions, or most accurate depictions, of a nuclear explosion affecting a populated area. Stan Winston did an amazing job. He's the guy who does a lot of the work on Jurassic Park, Aliens, Mm -hmm. The Thing, Edward Scissorhands, and again, here in The Terminator, and his crew studied test footage hours. A lot of movies just use actual footage of, like, nukes going off. And right. They, like, and they just use field footage. This and was just amazing. It's such a cool thing behind the scenes to see the miniatures that they made. Oh, As an architect, stall. I love models. So Do they use, like, like, crackers and stuff? Exactly. They built the buildings <laughs> out of, like, crackers, shredded wheat, and things that would look like they were dissolving. They did add some computer effects to, like, to, de- to help Tastefully. modify the blast. But they also used like air cannons, like an insane number of air cannons to blow these models over. They had cables rigged behind them to pull them down. I was in so impressed seeing there was like a tour bus. Yeah. That gets the 
roof ripped off by this, and you can see it's full of people. And it's a split-second shot, but the amount of detail was incredible. I know I'm looking at a model, in fairness. Like, like yeah. I, know, oh, yeah. I know some of the CGI stuff. That This is one of those moments where maybe a younger person might sit there and go, like, it would be better if you CGI'd all of this. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but I really appreciate the craft of some of these movies, and this is just part of when I was born. I do like miniatures, and I do find them very interesting. It took two days to set up one of these scenes to shoot model scenes, and the amount of work that went into it is insane, and it looks really good. Again, in the same way that I appreciate like a stage performance, you have to do it in front of people. This is still an era of movies where you have to do it in order to capture it. I really appreciate yeah. that. So Dan Winston's amazing. Mm-hmm. The animatronics. Arnold Schwarzenegger had to sit in makeup for six hours to get his to get like this applied on top of his face, and they they mud it in in such a way that makes it look like there's metal. I like, mean, it was underneath. like the poster child for the whole film. It had to be. Or maybe it was just, it turned out so good, they're like, this is going to be on every, you know, poster of this. Yeah. This half face. That, that was one of my iconic memories of this, where half his face is metal. It's just so good. I didn't realize, I thought it was always CGI when they get hit with bullets on the, the T-1000. Oh, I was surprised by that as well. And yeah. it's a special kind of foam that can expand and open up. And they had triggers, like remote triggers, that could cause it to open up like a flower. Yeah, and like, like in these it was almost like Jiffy Pop coming out of his, his Correct! That's chest. a very good way of explaining it. Like, yeah. So Robert Patrick actually had, like, these these little... Little explosive little, squibs or squi- something. Yeah, they called them squibs. I, yeah, and then they would, they would blow up, and they would use foil, or, like, they would, they would have, like, a piece that they would add on top of him, like, when he gets hit with, like, a bar. Like, they had, like, this piece that they would put over top of him, again, with aluminum foil. They're not doing this all with CGI. I assumed, I always assumed it was all CGI. Mm, mm. And the amount of Robert Patrick having to do that is astounding. The donut hole face, when he gets shot in the head and there's an actual hole that runs through his whole yeah, face, yeah. that is a prosthetic head. Like wow. the, with an animatronic eyes that can move left, right. And again, oh, how, I did not know that. How they light it. Yeah, donut head Robert Patrick is not, wow. is not a computer. Like, and it looks so good. It does. That's what I'm saying. So good. Like that's an animatronic thing. And, like, and that was one of the one of the biggest surprises when I watched this was how old it was. I forgot that it was from '91 and that it predated the internet. It's just astounding. If you go back and like look at all the CGI they do with like movie for a movie like Spawn, it looks terrible. <laughs> looks awful. Yeah, right. Like Blade Two looks terrible. Like, and then this looks amazing. And what really got me was like when the opening whatever, the studio logos and stuff, Yeah, they're shaking, you know, like that old school shake. And I was like, wait a minute, is this Terminator 2? Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is just... Passing through the metal bars was another great mm. moment. Like when Robert Patrick walks through those metal bars, and I love that the therapist is in the hall, like not therapist, but like the institutional, <laughs> like, like psychologist Psychiatrist. Guy, like, psychiatrist, just... yeah, like just like, like seeing this. And he's got like that <laughs> thing hanging out of his mouth from the... Oh, it's so good. When his gun gets stuck, after he, his body goes through the bars, and then his gun is stuck. You kind of touched on it briefly earlier when you were talking about how he uh, was able to do Schwarzenegger on top of a, a truck while it's moving. And, you know, the, the sequence of him, you know, basically jumping off and then skidding forward. I just think stuff like that, I think you're right, it, it does look... Like it would legitimately happen that way, as opposed to to going to something more goofy, like him, you know, catching himself on the ground and running away or something like that. 
Like it, it's it's more about taking the damage because that's what anything would than it is just being able to purely walk through it. Like the only reason they survive most of the T one thousand stuff is because the shotgun, you know, the, the, the concussion blocks them enough. I think it's really cool when you watch the behind the scenes. James Cameron has like this little pen camera and they build models of like the steel mills or they build models of the office mm. building. And he's actually had this little camera and like little cardboard models telling people where I want this to be positioned, how that's being done. I want the cinematographer, Alan Greenberg, to capture this angle over here and they can use lighting on that stuff. His ability to think ahead and to share his vision through drawings, but also through models was really cool to see that. The steel mills were, one was a real steel mill that they had, and then the other one was a decommissioned steel mill that was, you know. It had been close like 10 years. And they had to like make the ooze cold in order to make it look like it was flowing slowly, and they put orange lights in it to make it look like it was hot. So it was actually really cold in there, and they had to keep spraying people down in order to make it look like it's hot. So, again, I'm convinced by all of what I'm watching, but it, it, it did occur to me, as like, that must have been pretty uncomfortable to walk around like in like a t-shirt wet all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I thought they had just used water with some effects, but yeah, they went full in, got like the right viscosity yeah. of liquid steel with whatever simulant they used. And then I heard that like the, or read somewhere that the people that used to work in that steel mill thought it had opened up again <laughs> like because it looked so operational and so real. And then we talked a little bit about the training, but Uzi Gal is the mm. guy who trained them all and he's a Israeli commando. He worked for three hours a day for six straight weeks teaching them how to shoot, particularly Linda Hamilton. Sorry. She has a son at this point, and so she's barely sleeping at all. God. And these days are long shoots, and she's training, and she's being physically put through what she called sheer hell. Uh, she did appreciate her new physique. She looks outstanding, especially having had a child oh. recently. Like, oh, my God. I mean, yeah, the kid was like 20 weeks old or something. The kid's in the movie, Yeah, by the way. A, yeah, I, I just found that out, too. And her sister was the other... Uh, they had the two sets of twins in there. I mean, that's outstandingly amazing on Linda Hamilton's part. No Oscar nomination. I mean, I can't. I, can't, I know I sound like a broken and record. I definitely worth ten million. I mean, come on. Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't create life while no filming this. He did in Junior. That's true. Okay, touche. <laughs> it's my baby. <laughs> Different movie. Um. Brian, do you like the music here by Brad Fiedel? I think this is one of the most underrated science fiction scores of all time, if not the most underrated one. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't tell you, like, when I first, you know, when, when we had decided on this, I was sitting at my desk at work going, -na -na, <laughs> -na -na, and I was like, it, that, that was literally my first thought. I was like, you know, I haven't thought of the theme song in... I would say it's probably been at least 10 years, if not more, since I've seen this movie. And literally, it was the first thing that plays in my head as soon as you brought up Terminator 2. And I was like, that's, it's got to be one of the most underrated. I, it, just because of, it's, it's memorable enough that it is the soundtrack that plays whenever I think about Terminator. That's well put. My memory of it, I would actually was going down a lift at the university using a box almost identical to the one they used to lower him into the um the steel and my friend is watching me go down into this sub basement and he just starts singing 
that song, the theme song to Terminator 2, and it instantly, like I said, I've only seen the movie a couple of times, but I knew that sound and the scene like instantly. And I was, I was reading about the soundtrack, and the sound that was so iconic to me is like the, the T-1000 theme. Mm-hmm. That's like this very low pitch, like brrr, almost like a Jaws sort of theme. And it was like bassoon players warming up that he slowed down like 10 times to create like this totally unique sound that was so threatening. I hear it and I don't understand how they made it, but they took organic sounds, instrument sounds, and like you said, they manipulated it digitally. And I don't see that when I'm hearing it. I just hear a very good product. It's so fitting. I just hear the T-1000 coming after me when I hear that sound. It just gets me. It's an outstanding soundtrack, and you're right, Brian. I think it's under. I think because, like I said, I hadn't thought about it. We've talked about, you know, soundtracks coming out of everywhere recently, and you know, every year we talk about it, and then you know, this this comes up, and I'm like, I I know we have to do the movie to talk about it, but you know, we reference famous pieces, Jaws, Alien. They're pieces of music, Duel of the Fates, to Phantom Menace. They're you know tag two movies that make you be like, oh, yeah, that. And this definitely has one of those things, but I just feel like it's not one people ever think about. I don't think it has John Williams' name attached to it. Mm. I mean, Brad Fiedel doesn't... If you don't go to a symphony orchestra, <laughs> a pops orchestra, and you're gonna get this, because it is made so digitally. He didn't have a final cut of the movie, either. That's the other thing that surprises me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did. The more I study these things, that keeps happening. That just blows my mind. As a musician, you're supposed to breathe life into something that you don't have full conception of what you're breathing life into. And it always seems to work out so well. Well, not always, but I mean, so frequently, how does it work so well? That's amazing to me. Speaking about audio, was that was another thing that really caught me was the quality of like the sound was so gripping. And I was reading about that and it was, they almost like vast amounts of the movie, all the sound effects were done with Foley artists. Very few of the sounds were recorded on set. Yeah. Even things like clothes, metal clinking, and all the gunshots were like dubbed over with the sounds of larger guns. Yeah, like and a then cannon. The shotgun was two cannons. One cannon wasn't enough, apparently. So to make it sound more threatening, they, it was the sound of cannons, and then the handguns were actually like high caliber rifle sounds. Yeah, I know every time I've shot a shotgun, I'm like, man, this could really be louder. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, this isn't how it works. There's something wrong with this. My favorite sound one was Gary Reinstrom, who worked on the sound editing on this one, said that he opened a can of dog food and recorded it oozing slowly out of the can for the sound of the T-1000 passing through metal bars. He said, they spend $6 million on special effects and I only paid 35 cents for a can of dog food for this scene. Perfect. Uh, I always like those low-tech things of just like pancakes being dropped onto a frying griddle and things like that. Like celery, like snapping it. Yeah. I know I've said it before on the podcast, but I'll say it again. If there was ever a job in film that I, if if I could just step right into it without any question, I would love to be a sound engineer. Like just the guys who, who think up how to make a sound. You guys ready to hand out some superlatives? It would be the best time. MVP of Terminator 2, Kurt. For me, how realistic they got it in terms of the technology, but I guess the clarity of the screenplay. So William Wisher and James Cameron working together on that one. 
Yeah, and it's it's aged really well. Six to seven weeks only to write all of this. <sighs> that blows me away because they're talking about neural networks and stuff that we have now, like ChatGPT. The only thing they didn't quite get right, and it's probably too hard to make interesting in a movie, is that it's really more of a software problem than a hardware problem. They show the guy inventing the microchip that is responsible. It's no fun to just watch the computer. I know, yeah. You, so you, you can't model, really do that. It's yeah. got to be something it's you can hold in your hands. Exactly. Yeah. Brian, MVP. Got to go with Linda. She's amazing at yeah. this. Yeah. I love Good the call. So Gourney Weaver, by the way, got an Oscar nomination for Alien, which she deserved, and she should have. Where is Linda Hamilton? Oscar nomination? MVP for me is going to go to James Cameron. But I, nobody said Donald Schwarzenegger. He really is outstanding. He, it wouldn't icon. have happened without him. He's an icon. Oh. Best supporting, Kurt. Furlong. All right. Brian, best supporting actor. Robert Patrick. If you have not had a dream of that man running after you, I don't know what to tell you. I dream about Robert Patrick all the time. <laughs> nightmares of him running at you. I mean, he's always scary. Even when he doesn't mean to be scary. He could be dogged and he's scary like in X-Files. Like, I mean, I don't know. He's forever scary to me. I also said Robert Patrick, the technology plus his performances as an actor, just great. It was a great cutscene of him feeling all the things in John's room, scanning things, and just watching him be a computer. He says so very little in this movie. He yeah. says things like, "That's a nice bike," and <laughs> "Get out." <laughs> exactly. How is he so memorable, saying so little? That's outstanding work. Hidden gem, Kurt. I like when Arnold Schwarzenegger picks up the toddler and stares at it. And, and like the parents scenes. are just like, this is normal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, random Jack. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, he doesn't drink he looks like he's going to eat my baby, but whatever. <laughs> They're gun runners, so I think they have a different level of normal. So, But Brian, hidden gem. I'm probably going to go with the shrink on this one just because he does make recurring. Mm -hmm. When he gets that syringe stuck in his neck with the washer fluid in it it's so gratifying to see him like because you know, he's been a real jerk the whole oh, time man. and but i i think he's in at least three terminator movies so he's a he's a very quietly a recurring character in almost all of them i love it so my hidden gem i think kurt touched on a little bit before linda hamilton's twin sister leslie hamilton uh garen was used as a double in the scenes for sarah connor so like when the T-1000 steps behind her and the steel mill and she's standing in front of them, those are actually two ladies and they are twins and she is very identical. You think it's green screen and you're like, but it looks too good. So, same thing. So they use twins again, Adult and Stanton and Dan Stanton. They're the hospital security guards and one's the T-1000 who puts his fingers through like, like with a blade through the other guy's face. Uh, you know, by the way, they're also gremlins to the new batch. So. And uh, Good Morning Vietnam, so those twins hmm. get into a few things, so uh, twins are my hidden gem. Twins, Bezel. Twins. Yes. <laughs> recast. You had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place. Do you want Denzel Washington to play Dyson? Because he was offered the part, but he turned it down, saying oh, that this character's not strong enough. Like he's all, Oh, that's all he right. Does, uh, he didn't want to be scared. He didn't want to be scared be the whole time. Yeah. He had to have a stronger portrayal, even though it's a very progressive role for a black man to have. You know, I really like the guy they had in there for him. I did too, actually. Brian, do you want to go first, and then we'll come back around to Kurt? Brian, who's your recast? I got a little different on this one. I am using the history is not written, time travel cop-out that is used so many times in the Terminator movies for this one. I am going to change out Edward Furlong's John Connor 
for a new secondary strong female character, and I'm going to go Christina Ricci as Joanna Connor. Ooh. Okay. So I did not necessarily like the foster father as much as I like the foster oh, mother. No. So I'm going after Xander Berkeley on this one, and I'm going to replace him with Billy Bob Thornton. I want him to be white trashier. <laughs> and I oh, think Billy Bob Thornton. the same guy, can, though. I think Billy Bob Thornton maximizes your white trash I, I hear you. quotient. Oh, everybody hates Todd, though. That, that actor, I'm not sure if he's ever been in a movie where he gets to be liked. Well, he's not here, that's for sure. Todd. He's such a Todd. This is a hard movie to recast. I want Lance, a young Lance Hendrickson, as that douchebag orderly that licks oh, yeah. Sarah Connor's face. Oh, it's so oh, gross. Awful. I don't know oh. how she's late still for Oh, that. my God. So yeah. gross. Best shot. When he comes up with a huge crowbar and just splits the, the T-1000 in half. Oh, yeah. yeah. At the steel mill. I, I was a big fan of the steel mill setting at the end. Brian, best shot. I really like T-1000's post hit with a grenade launcher around the thing like nature of him standing there all grotesquely blown outward before he falls, especially with the, uh, the backdrop of the molten steel behind them. I just thought that was awesome. So my image of this movie is on the Bull, Bull Creek Spillway in Los Angeles, which is like the Los Angeles River. Arnold's holding a gun out on his bike, holding Edward Furlong, and that gun is like pointed right at the camera. And it's such an intense conclusion to such an intense scene that we didn't really talk about. That scene's outstanding. The chase scene out of the mall and into this L.A. river that they have is out. just so exciting. And the, the conclusion of that is just so... Mm. That's an action movie at its finest. Yeah. So that, that's one of them, but I, I just want to have a, a couple of shout-outs. When Sarah has the dream and she's blasted, standing on the fence, and the skeleton is like being dissolved and the flesh is spilling off oh, of her, man, that's it's hard to watch. Incredible. It sticks in your mind. And it's not the kind of movie shot you want to have in your head, but it's also incredibly visceral and powerful. The other one that I mentioned was when Arnold comes off the elevator and the psych ward uh, that was just outstanding, the way that that moment of Linda Hamilton seeing him and slowing that down in that dramatic moment. Cameron said I like to use slow motion for suspense and not for action, which I think is a great rule because I sometimes mm. get on people for over-slow-mowing things. Mm. and. There are some moments of slow motion, like when Arnold drives his bike into the L.A. River and he makes the big drop. Oh, like on yeah, the, like yeah. They had cables that they had to, like, erase and all that stuff, and there's logistics to that. But for the most part, I appreciate the lack of slow-mo. When you do it there, it is very impactful. And Kurt, best scene. Okay, best yeah. scene is probably the box of roses going flying and John running from both Terminators, and they meet in the hallway of the mall in the back. Okay. And there's, you can see the shotgun aimed directly at John. It's kind of like fuzzy in the background. And it was like the moment when, if you knew nothing about the film, you might think that Arnold. Good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, get down! And then he shoots the T-1000. You get your first shot of the crazy special effects of his liquid metal blowing off. This is actually mine as well. When, yeah. When, like when that and that, slow that, motion. Yeah. Building with the yeah. It's it's mine as well. The meeting of the two and the first chase scene that emerges from that's my favorite. Brian, can you be different? <laughs> Todd getting arm knife through a carton of milk for a couple different reasons. You get a broader understanding of T one thousand's abilities with that, and I also like how subtly it's done. 
because it's not until after the Terminator hangs up and says your parents are already dead before they zoom out and they show the arm knife through the carton of milk, then the space, then it through his mouth and into the cabinet. And I was like, that's so metal. <laughs> it is a rewarding scene, too. Yeah. Take that, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Best wardrobe or makeup moment hurt. I mean, there's obviously half metal face. the half metal face. Brian. Best wardrobe or makeup moment? Linda Hamilton's general tactical getup is not only really attractive, but also just super BA in every sentence. Like, I just, I, I never get the feeling that she can't kick someone's butt. Oh, for sure. She was trading with a actual Israeli commando, <laughs> so I think she literally can probably kick somebody's butt. I even dig the aviator sunglass. I just, I don't know. I like everything she's got going on in this. The uh, scene where she actually lashes back out on the attendant, who, the warden, who's been keeping her locked down, she actually oh, she hit, hit him. him. She hit him really hard because she kind of channeled, like, he was supposed to hit her, and he kept pulling his punches. He didn't want to, like, hit the like, lady that hard. And, up but she had scene. to fall down to her knees hard, like, on the floor, and to do the take took many, many, many times. And she was like, you need to hit me. And of course, Cameron being Cameron's like, hit her again, hit her again, hit her again, <laughs> which was really hard in Lemonhead Hamilton. So when it came time for her to hit him with a broomstick, she just laid into him. <laughs> so but she really can fight probably a little bit. I wouldn't want to get in a fight. I would with her. Nope. Pass. My best wardrobe or makeup moment has got to be the collecting of the T-800's wardrobe on the biker bar, one piece at a time, including the final touches of the mm. glasses out front when the guy's like, can't let you take his wheels. <laughs> and he, uh, Takes the gun from him and and then turns around and gets the sunglasses as a final touch. That was so classy. It's like one of those details that could have not even been in there. Like and you know, like a different filmmaker or something. Are they like, did they ad lib that? Was that planned from the beginning? Arnold is a genuinely funny person. I cannot help but think some of these things have to come from Arnold yeah. at times. But you know, Cameron said that you know he had to be careful not to go too funny at times. Right. But I find these moments of humor to make this very rewarding. Yeah. Change one thing. And only one thing, Kurt, don't say the ending. <laughs> I was trying hard not to say the ending. You can't. They, they don't kill the Terminator. Oh, you want to keep Arnold around? They keep Arnold. I like that. He clears their names. Who's, tell, who's pulling that ship out of his head? <laughs> Logistically. I mean, it's not happening. They get diplomatic immunity. Diplomatic immunity. They go straight to the press. With Arnold, they tell the world that time travel's real, AI, blah, 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 and they protect him from being, like, destroyed. Kurt likes a happy air ending, so yeah, that's okay. Yeah. yeah, Brian, change one thing. I want Terminator in the same theoretical universe as Alien and Predator. Cyberdyne systems survive as a company and continue to F around in the future. They become a future competitor to Waylon Yutani and end up having a hand in development of synthetics. So instead of getting Aliens vs. Predators 2, you want to have Aliens vs. Predators vs. Terminator. I'll watch it. I guess I've, I've looked this up, and that exists as, a, as like a visual novel or a comic book. Really? There is an Alien vs. Predator vs. Terminator Ooh. comic. Cyberdyne Systems just reminds me so much of Waylon Yutani, and I just thought it would be cool if maybe you get this this uh, triforce of evil in the future trying to bring all of these mm. things that will eventually kill us together. My change one thing, this is a tiny thing, and you'll, I'm well on record as having loved this movie, but 
they're in a very modern house when Dyson is being attempted to be sa- to assassinate him. His head's laying on a coffee table, like a like a modern granite coffee table, and the magazine next to his head that I can't help but see, and I once you see it, I can't unsee it. As an architect, this bothers me. It says traditional home, and it says house beautiful, and they have all these quaint little better homes and gardens magazines. There's no way anybody in that house, they, they, if they own that cool modern house, that is not the periodical that on their coffee table, and it bothers me. Uh, very unlike his home, and whoever's in charge of the set design gets a uh, a black mark for me on that one. You're looking at this way the wrong way. Uh, clearly, Dyson, giving his background, probably either got that house from the company, or it's his taste, and that is his wife's not-so-subtle kickback to not wanting to live where they're living. I'm going to need a piece of exposition just to explain the magazine. It can be a deleted scene. It does not have to make it in the movie, mm, but mm. the magazine bothers me. That is passive aggression all over his Edits. coffee table. Oh, yeah. This I mean, go- and they're laid out perfectly. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I noticed them watching it this time, and I was like, they just look out of place. You know what having a fancy modern house like that gets you? Terminated, okay? Best quote, Kurt. I mean, there's going to be Asta La Vista, baby. Brian. You going for another iconic line like "Come with me if you want to live"? No, I was actually agreeing with you guys earlier. I, I think my favorite quote is, "You can't just go around killing people." Why? I it, well, in here it's it's how he says it. I mean, it's all in the execution. Why? I would say that one of my favorites is "Because the future's not set. There's no fate but what we make for ourselves." I like the message of that. I like the fact that we, uh, it is up to us to make a better life, afterlife, and. You can take that up to the spiritual level if you want to. I really like that line a lot. It's very powerful. But in terms of what gets me in the emotions of the movie, when Sarah Connor says, watching John with the machine, it was suddenly so clear. The Terminator would never stop. It would never leave him. It would never hurt him. It would never shout at him, get drunk, or hit him. Or say it was too busy to spend time with him. It would always be there. It would die to protect him. Of all the would-be fathers who came and went over the years, this one thing, this machine, was the only one who measured up. And in an insane world, it was the sanest choice. There's not a lot of Sarah Connor doing voiceovers, so the fact that they shifted perspective from John to her and, and changing the narrative of whose voice it was, it had to be pretty powerful to make James Cameron do that. Arnold is a one-liner machine. Like, so, I mean, Get Out's pretty good, too, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great one. I also like the biker going, you didn't say please. Yeah. Like, with the cigar and the chest. You know the, the guy that gets kicked out of the helicopter? Apparently was the actual pilot that flew the helicopter. Yeah. The guy was like, I'll just fly under that overpass. I don't care if there's six feet of clearance. Well, we have come a long way, and we are here at the conclusion here. On a five-star scale with half-star intervals, what would you rate Terminator 2 Judgment Day from 1991, Kurt? I mean, it's it's such a quintessential movie to me that almost all others get measured against. I give it five stars. Five stars? Brian, are you going to go there, too? Terminator 2. Yeah, it's definitely a five-star movie. I'm going to join the five-star club. I've been showing my hand the whole way. There's no, there's, <laughs> there's no drama here. I love this movie. So, Brian, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Do you feel that feeling in the air, Brian? Well, it's the feeling of love. Definitely haven't lost that loving feeling. Yeah, it's Valentine's Day. It's coming up. And what better way to prepare for that than by listening to the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast you love. Option one. 
Sweet Home Alabama from 2002, a young woman who has reinvented herself as a New York City socialite, must return home to Alabama to obtain a divorce from her husband after seven years of separation. Option two, you've got mail from 1998. Bookstore magnate Joe Fox and independent bookstore shop owner Kathleen Kelly fall in love in the anonymity of the internet, both blissfully unaware that he's trying to put her out of business. Option three, when Harry met Sally from 1989. Harry and Sally have known each other for years and are very good friends, but they fear sex would ruin their friendship. Brian, what's it going to be? I think we've got to go with when Harry met Sally on this one. I'll have what she's having. Kurt, thank you very much for coming on. It has been a blast. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you, Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us on retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support our show at the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? No, it's nothing personal. Although, I don't like you as a person.